So chapter 10, verse 3 of Zechariah. The Lord says this. My anger is hot against the shepherds. And I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. And will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah. And I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. And their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been failed. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Our passage recalls a huge problem in Israel. Uh, Namely, false leadership. Leadership that wasn't living up to what it was supposed to be. In the Old Testament, the metaphor of a shepherd with his flock was used to depict God's relationship with his people. But sometimes this metaphor gets applied to the leaders of God's people. And there's good reason for that. Leaders of God's people should have reflected the same concern that God himself had for his people. And insofar as a leader failed to represent the Lord's care, he was a false leader. Just prior to the exile, most of Israel's leaders were false. In places like Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23, God rebukes the false shepherds in Israel for not caring for his sheep. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, 
The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. One further way that these leaders weren't caring for the sheep is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 10 verse 2. We looked at this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago. These false shepherds were leading them according to their own idols. And as a result, this false leadership led to a host of problems in Israel. False leadership eventually led to a, a divided kingdom. The northern part and the southern part. False leadership spread idolatry and sexual immorality as they were erecting the high places on Uh on the mountains. I don't know. You know, with each generation, these problems only increased. Such that even the massive reforms under the good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah just couldn't turn things around. And finally, God has enough of this. And just like he said he would, he removes his people from their land and he scatters them into exile as if they've been rejected altogether. And throughout the exile, Israel wanders around under the boot of different shepherds from the nations. False leadership, idolatry, a divided kingdom... A scattered people without a land. A people rejected. A covenant relationship with God broken. And it's no wonder that God describes his people in verse 2 as wandering sheep that are afflicted and without a shepherd. Chapter 10, however, the rest of it, is the answer to all these problems. It's an announcement of God's gracious rescue and provision. So, for instance, Israel once had a problem with false leadership, but verses 3 and 4 tell us that God will judge them and replace them with His own leadership. Israel once had a divided kingdom, but verse 6 says that God will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. Judah being the southern kingdom, Joseph representing the northern kingdom. Israel was once afflicted and weak, but now verses 5 and 7 say that God will make them strong again. Israel was once a scattered people without a land, but verses 8 to 10 explain how God would gather them from the nations and give them a new land. Israel was once rejected by God, but verse 6 informs us that God will mend even that relationship too. Israel had at one time followed its leaders into idolatry, but now verse 12 says... That they would walk in the Lord's name. In other words, chapter 10 gives us a bit of a collage of of God's future grace rescuing his helpless people. Whatever problem they had, God willingly comes to them in compassion and promises them his grace. And I want every person in this room to understand that he will do the same for you. Where you have been led astray, God can lead you home. Where you have been afflicted, God can protect you. Where you have followed others into idolatry, He can make you walk in His ways. Where you are trapped in sin, He can get you out. Grace is available to you this morning just as it was available to Israel. And the one who brings it 
is a compassionate shepherd. The message of God's grace in this passage is seasoned with the metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep. Verse 3, he cares for his flock. Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them in. These kinds of, of images depict God acting as a true shepherd of his people in contrast to the false shepherds of his people. How is it that this true shepherd acts on behalf of his people? I want to point you to four ways that he acts. First of all, the true shepherd, as the true shepherd, he protects his people from their enemies. He protects his people from their enemies. Chapter 10, verse 3 says, My anger is hot against the shepherds, meaning the, the false shepherds here, and I will punish the leaders. And if you notice, the footnote number 2 in your ESV says literally, these leaders are male goats. This is not nice language. It's like calling them punkish bullies. They get in there with their horns and shove people out of their, out of their way. And what will God do to these male goats of leaders? He will punish them, it says. And then again in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, we, we get this short poem saying virtually the same thing. Uh, various figures of speech come together in the form of a lament that announces judgment on the false shepherds. Uh, you see, oftentimes in scriptures, the, the trees of a forest will represent the pride of man or the pride of a nation, and then God will come in and then destroy that. He comes in as a uh, uh, lumberjack and hacks down the forest so that he lays low the pride of the, of the nations. And the same thing is going on here, but in relation to the false shepherds. The different forests represent the false shepherds and God is telling them that the day of their wailing has come. He's about to cut them down and burn them. And notice something about these false shepherds in chapter 11, verse 3. They do not wail because of the way they treated the sheep. They wail because they lost their own glory. which further reveals why God must get them away from his people. These false shepherds are consumed with their own glory. They're caring for the people as a means to gaining glory for themselves. And one way that God shows his care for the sheep is that he promises to protect them from those kinds of shepherds. He will punish them. That should be a sobering warning to anybody who desires to lead God's people from selfish motives. It should be a sobering warning to anybody who's already in leadership and begins to enjoy the compliments a little too much. Or who begins to fish for those pats on the back when they don't come often enough. Brothers, some of you may desire to lead the church one day. Some of you are studying with this goal in mind. Take heed to these words and pray for the Lord to keep you from this kind of pride. 1 Peter 5 two tells pastors... Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. God will punish the leaders who choose to do otherwise. And by judging these false shepherds, the Lord 
protects his people. Second, as the true shepherd, the Lord also strengthens his people with his presence. Many of us are familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie. <clears throat> Excuse me, he makes me to lie down in green pastures and so on. What is the one thing that strengthens David as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death? It's the Lord's presence with him. <clears throat> Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they come for me. What happens here is similar. God replaces the false shepherds with his own presence. And with his own presence, the people are strengthened. His presence so strengthens them uh, that, according to the end of verse 3, the afflicted sheep become like his majestic steed in battle. This is like turning a schoolboy into a Navy SEAL. All right? Or a kite into an F-35. All right? The weak are made strong. They're totally transformed. We'll come back to verse 4 in a minute, but look with me again at verse, uh, verses 5 and 6. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight, get this, because the Lord is with them. And they shall put to shame the riders on horses. This is a picture of, of their enemies. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back. That is back into a covenant relationship with the Lord. Why? Because I have compassion on them, he says, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. So this renewed covenant relationship with the once straying and afflicted sheep, this, this reconciliation of them to God, where the Lord is now dwelling in their midst uh, with his people again, it strengthens his flock into a victorious army. And this army of people even has new leadership. Jump back with me now to verse 4. And you'll see in verse 4 several metaphors for leadership that are piled up. The Lord will provide the cornerstone, the peg, and the battle bow. The cornerstone commonly refers to the corner of a foundation. Every once in a while, though, it was used as a metaphor for leadership, uh, and in particular, leadership that would play a key role in the life of a community. Interestingly enough, both Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118 use the same metaphor to describe the Messiah. Next, we get the peg. The ESV calls it a tent peg, but it can also describe the, the peg on a wall, okay, on which to hang something. So Isaiah 22, verses 22 to 25, provide the best example here, uh, where the Lord takes Eliakim and he fastens Eliakim to, uh, in a secure place, and the people can then hang on Eliakim the whole honor of his father's house. So he's a dependable leader. He's, they can hang everything on him. So it's important leadership. It's dependable leadership. And then lastly, with the metaphor of a battle bow, we see that it's 
Leadership with military strength. Now there's a debate over whether these metaphors refer to the Messiah in particular or to a more general group of leaders in Judah. And in my judgment, the very next words do suggest that it's a general group of leaders. He says, every ruler, all of them together. At the same time, though, we shouldn't forget chapter 9 while we're reading chapter 10. And chapter 9 does tell us very plainly that God also has a Messiah, a king for Zion, who will rule from sea to sea. The emphasis here just happens to fall on what happens when that king takes over. When that king takes over, when he brings the presence of God near to God's people, all kinds of new leadership start cropping up, start, start growing out of his people, and God's people become strong under their care. Sounds very familiar. Very similar to what happens uh, when Jesus brings the presence of God to us in the church. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when he dwells among us, we not only get new leadership, we become strengthened under his care. Part of the way Jesus' rule works itself out in the church is by the Spirit gifting men to lead his people. It started with the twelve, but now it's worked outward to, to many leaders. But another way Jesus' rule works itself out in the church is by strengthening us with the presence of God. The Holy Spirit comes and He dwells in us and He unites us and then empowers us with various gifts and services and activities. And in this way, Jesus builds the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. And in that image that Jesus gives in Matthew 16, when it says the gates of Hades will not prevail against us, that's not because the gates are attacking us. It's because the church is seen as a victorious army pushing them down. Third, as the true shepherd, the Lord also gathers his people into his kingdom. The Lord also gathers his people into his kingdom. This is a bit different than raising sheep. But when I was a kid, my grandpa raised cattle. And every so often, I got to help feed the cattle. But before he fed the cattle, he'd call them up. He'd walk out there or sit in the back of his truck, and he'd go something like this. Come on, cows. I'm only doing that once. We'll never hear it again. So some of the cows were near. Some of them, you can't see them. They're all in the brush. But whenever he started calling, they'd come running. You see, they knew his voice, and they had witnessed his care over time. Something similar is going on here in verses 8 to 10. He says, I will whistle for them. Again, this image of a shepherd calling for his sheep. I will whistle for them, God says, and gather them in, <clears throat> for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries, they shall remember me 
and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there's no room for them. When he says he scattered them among the nations, that's not the usual Hebrew word uh, that's used for scattering. We see elsewhere, that we've seen elsewhere in, in, in Zechariah. Uh, it's actually the word used for sowing seed in order to produce a crop. Meaning that when God sent them into exile, he had a greater purpose than mere discipline. He meant to multiply them for a future gathering. And there'd be so many people on that day that the land as they knew it wouldn't even contain them. This is part of the reason why I, I said he gathered them into his, his kingdom. Egypt and Assyria stand as symbols for the kingdom of man, as types for all the nations who oppress God and oppress God's people. Why else would he use Assyria... Uh, when, historically speaking, Assyria has been defeated and done away with for two centuries now, in Zechariah's day. The point is that Assyria becomes a type, just like Babylon was a type. Assyria is a type for all the oppressive nations to the north, and Egypt is a type for all the oppressive nations in the south. And so God intends to gather his people out of the kingdom of man, wherever they are, north or south, and bring them into the kingdom of God, which is here represented by Gilead and Lebanon. Now, Gilead was the mountainous region just east of the Jordan, and uh, Lebanon was the northernmost part of the land of Canaan with its lush pasture lands and its big cedars. But by the time you get to the prophets both of these places begin to symbolize more than just a chunk of property. New realities begin to fill them. I'll give you a few examples. In Jeremiah 50, verses 19 to 20, God will satisfy His people on the hills in Gilead and no sin will be found in them anymore. No sin found in them anymore as God satisfied His people in Gilead. Uh, Micah chapter 7, verses 11 to 14, we see there uh, when, that uh, the, boundary, the boundary will have to be far extended because of all the nations coming in, and God will then shepherd his flock in Gilead. Or uh, in Isaiah 29, verse 17, there's a divine reversal such that the humble who are in Lebanon will be exalted above the others. Uh, and then Obadiah 19 to 21, uh, it's talk, it gives these, a list of, of places where uh, God's people will uh, possess the gates of their enemies. It numbers Gilead among the places that his people will possess. And then it says this, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So part of what God does as the true shepherd is gather his people out of the kingdom of man and into the kingdom of God, which seems to be one that needs to be expanded. It needs to be expanded beyond the borders, the traditional borders of Israel, in order to contain all the people that are coming in. 
Have you ever poured too much uh, gasoline into a funnel at once so it's not coming out as fast? And it starts pouring over the sides, the, the top of it. This is the idea that so many people are flooding into Israel. There's no room left for them. It's, they're, they're spilling over the sides and they're funneling in for all the nations. We've got to get the borders out uh, to contain all the people that God is, is rescuing. And our fourth point today is going to tell us how God goes about accomplishing that deliverance and that gathering uh, Uh, Of the remnant. So, fourth, as the true shepherd, the Lord leads his people out of bondage through a new exodus. The Lord leads his people out of bondage through a new exodus. Many of you are familiar with the great exodus deliverance. God's people were held captive in Egypt, they couldn't deliver themselves. Then God steps in and he delivers them with a mighty, outstretched arm. He kills the firstborn in Egypt. He spares Israel at the cost of a lamb. And then he leads them through the Red Sea, gets victory over their enemies so that Israel can then be his people. Well, that first Exodus deliverance becomes a pattern that's continually referred to throughout the Old Testament and, at, and, and eventually becomes a pattern that's pointing forward to the future work of salvation as well. And that's what we get in verses 11 to 12 is this pattern pointing forward to a future and a new exodus. Verse 11, he says, uh, The Lord shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. Reminds us of when he led Israel through the Red Sea. Now it's broadened or symbolized as the sea of troubles. God will enter the sea of all that troubles his people, and then lead them out. Then he says, all, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Why choose the Nile over the Red Sea or the Jordan? Where he's done this before? Well, because it didn't matter where his people were held captive. No obstacle, wherever they were, would stand in God's way, including their enemies. If we keep reading, the pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. They would no longer have the power, in other words. And what is the result? I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in His name. So they are a, now a freed people. They've been freed from their bondage in Egypt and Syria. They've been brought to the Lord, and they can now walk in His name. Now, why would God give to Israel this image of a new and greater exodus after they've already returned from Babylon? It's because he's looking forward to a new and greater exodus that will surpass what they experienced in coming out of Egypt and will surpass what they experience coming out of Babylon. And I'd submit to you that that new exodus has begun to find its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many times over, the New Testament envisions the new exodus deliverance 
finding its fulfillment in Jesus. I'll give you a few examples. This is why Joseph and Mary took Jesus into Egypt as a child. Just as God called his son Israel out of Egypt in the past, God was calling his son Jesus out of Egypt as well, but for a much greater deliverance. Jesus represents the true Israel, and he would lead us, not just out of bondage to Pharaoh and enemies like that, tyrants. No, he would lead us out of our bondage to sin and death. Then at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus on the mountain. This is in Luke chapter 9. And they see Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. And Luke chapter 9, verse 31 says that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and they were talking to Jesus about his departure or literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What's going on there? Luke is telling us that the cross would be where Jesus accomplished the new and greater exodus, where he leads his people out of their bondage to sin and death. In John's gospel, Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and that's why the soldiers don't break his legs on the cross. And as the Passover lamb, Jesus delivers us from our slavery to sin and from the penalty of eternal death. At the cost of this lamb, Jesus Christ, all of his people go free. Free from sin, free from death. Our shepherd entered our sea of troubles, all the troubles caused by our sin, and he did that at the cross, and then he led us out of bondage when he took up his life again three days later. And you know what that means? It means we are free to walk in God's name. We are free to walk in God's name. In the cross, we find deliverance from our bondage at the cost of God's only Son so that we might then live for God and live for God while rejoicing. Right? The, notice the twofold goal. If we go back to Zechariah 10 now, notice the twofold goal of joy and holiness. Uh, Zechariah 10, verse 7 speaks of the people's hearts full of of gladness. And you know what? This gladness isn't going to stop. It keeps going on and on because, because it says their children will be glad too. So this gladness will carry on from generation to generation. God's rescue always produces gladness in the people that he rescues from bondage. Right? That's what happens when you're enslaved and you can't get out and your Redeemer comes and gets you out. You rejoice. You give him praise and thanks. And then verse 12 
says that they will walk in his name. God's name represents God's character. To walk in his name is to live in ways that reflect God's character. Sometimes we call this the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life. So joy and holiness are the goal of the true shepherd's work to redeem his people. He protects us from our enemies. He strengthens us with his presence. He gathers us into his kingdom. He leads us out of our bondage through a new exodus. And the result is joy and holiness. Two things that the apostles apply to the church again and again and again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Philippians 4. And since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So we rejoice and we walk in God's name. All because we've been set free from our bondage to sin through Christ. So one thing I love about this passage is that it speaks to numerous kinds of sheep. In verse 2, there are wandering sheep and afflicted sheep. In verse 3, there are sheep that need strengthening. In verse 6, there are lost sheep that need saving. Divided sheep that need uniting. Rejected sheep that need compassion. In verse 8 and following, there are scattered sheep that need to be gathered Enslaved sheep that need redemption, forgetful sheep that need to remember their shepherd, and sheep that are endangered but need protection. And the list could go on here. Yet in every case, the Lord is their only hope. It's not that each of these sheep need different saviors for, different, for the different problems they're facing, but that they all need the one savior who does everything. It's not that they need a little bit of Jesus to save them from this and then other saviors that work for that. No, they need Jesus for everything, period. He alone leads the wandering, heals the afflicted, strengthens the weak, saves the lost, unites the divided, shows compassion to the rejected, gathers the scattered, redeems the enslaved, summons the forgetful, and protects the endangered. There's no other shepherd that will do except the Lord Jesus Christ. And His care is available to every one of us today. If we trust in Him and in what He's done for us. All of our hopes in life must ultimately depend on Him, wherever you may be this morning. The true shepherd, Jesus Christ, is the answer to your problems. Especially your biggest problem, sin. So don't let self and human concerns push back His call on you this morning. He gave his life for you on the cross and rose from the dead to leave you to lead you out of your bondage. He knows you by name and is calling you home through these words here in Zechariah. So return to him. That's one of the themes throughout Zechariah is return to him. Leave your chains and return to them. You can leave your chains because Jesus Christ through his death broke them so that you could run out with him and walk in his ways. Rejoice in what he's accomplished for you. Find your strength in him and then walk in his name. Some of you may still have deep wounds from false shepherds in your past. Whether because of false teaching or false leading. You were not cared for. 
Others of you have difficulty shaking bitterness and fears that rise over shepherds who've gone astray and fallen into public sins that have led to their resignation. Men you've respected. Men who wrote books that turned your life around. And something got exposed that left you feeling somewhat betrayed. Others of you have hurts maybe from true shepherds, but true shepherds who've stumbled in their care for you. Hear me say this. No matter what kind of wounds you carry, you have a true shepherd in the Lord Jesus and his and his son I mean his, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will never fail you. He will never fail you. In Ezekiel 34, 16, God even says, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. How does he do this from Ezekiel 34? Well, he talks about that that shepherd's name is going to be a new, is going to be David. And we know from the good shepherd of John 10 that that new David is Jesus Christ. He binds up the injured. He's come to strengthen the weak. If you belong to God's flock by faith in Jesus Christ, God knows your injuries and and he promises to bind them up. Keep your hopes in the ultimate shepherd and not in feeble men. And to my fellow brothers, let's reflect the true shepherd's character. If we've been freed from sin to walk in God's name, then brothers, hear me, we must reflect the character of this great shepherd of the sheep. Don't forget, my fellow elders, that we are called shepherds in the New Testament because God wants our lives to reflect His shepherdly care for the sheep. And if you're a husband or a father, consider that much of God's care for His bride and much of God's care for His children comes across in the metaphor of a shepherd. And if you're a single man, there are ways that you too can reflect God's compassionate, shepherdly care for others. We cannot be this shepherd, but because of this shepherd, we can be men who reflect his care for the sheep. We cannot imitate his great new Exodus deliverance, but we can imitate the compassion that took him there and completed it. Other people should be able to look at our care for others and see it as a picture of God's shepherdly care for his people. Brothers, how are you reflecting the way God protects his sheep from their enemies? Does the word of God so saturate your mind that you are able to discern Satan's schemes and protect those around you and those that God has placed in your care? Does your counsel seek to protect your children in this broken and fallen world? Or does your counsel help you to protect your brothers when they are in error? What does your leadership look like? Are you leading at all? Are you leading the sheep that God has entrusted to your care? And do you know them well enough to actually lead them? Are you going after them when they're lost and injured? 
How are your words regularly strengthening, strengthening your wife in the truths of the gospel? Men, how would you say that you promote the protection and prosperity of women and children in society? By what you do or what you don't do? I'm not asking you to pretend like you're the savior of the church or of, the, of your wife or of your children, but I am asking whether they see the shepherd in you. Whether they see you walking with the shepherd. Where you may fall short in this, brothers, as I have this week, just talking, with things, talking things through with, with my own wife, look again to the true shepherd where you find yourself guilty for not reflecting Him, where you find yourself despairing over all that needs to change, where you find yourself lost in how to even go about this change, look again to the shepherd who enters your sea of troubles to bring you out of bondage and then to strengthen you and then to make you walk in His name. This all comes for you in Christ, including good leaders that He's provided to equip you in this Shepherding. Mike Branch is planning to equip the men in shepherding at our next men's breakfast. Here, we're going to take this theme right into men's breakfast. So come and learn more from Mike. He is a gift to this church for our building up. And so don't miss this opportunity to grow in shepherding. I might also recommend a couple of books if you're a husband or a father. Um, you might pick up The Shepherd Leader at Home by Timothy Whitmer. And parents, a great place to start is Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. We might have Shepherding a Child's Heart still in the, in the book note. In fact, yes, I think I see the green, the green spine. And then finally, how could I not say something about the church's mission from a passage like this? Church, play your part in gathering the sheep from all the nations. The new exodus has begun in Jesus Christ. His cross has broken the power of sin. His blood paid the price to ransom people from all nations. He rose from the dead to lead a countless of multitude out of their sins. And he's gathering them into his kingdom as you and I preach the gospel. It started with 12. And it grew to 120. And on Pentecost, it grew to 3,000. And ever since then, God has been leading his remnant home. From Judea... And Sumeria and to the end of the earth, God is gathering his sheep into his kingdom. And one day we will come in bright array when he raises us from the dead and we reign with him on earth. We will be a countless multitude. We will be a great army that tramples our enemies under our feet. But until then, we preach the gospel. 
Until then, we gather the multitude. That day has not come. There are still more that need to hear in order to be saved. And this is how God whistles for his remnant to come home through you and me preaching the gospel to others. Be mindful of our visitors on Sunday morning. Have compassion on the poor and the suffering in this city. Seek out the lost and find them. Use your gifts to strengthen the church in her mission. Not just to the nations far away, but also to your neighbors close by. And if you start thinking, me? How could I ever be a part of preaching the gospel to others? I'm too quiet, I'm introverted, I have all kinds of fears. Well, remember that this God is in the business of making weak people strong. He strengthens you with his presence. My charge to you is just walk with him. Just walk with him. Pray to him. Depend on him. And you will find yourself strengthened to share with and care for others. Jesus said to his disciples, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning the fold of Israel. I must bring them also. And he promises us, they will listen to my voice. So let's find them. I'd like to pray together.